King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance and a servant named Rhonda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she insisted that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Morning, everyone. So this Tuesday is Anzac Day, and uh, some of us from the church will be involved in the Sunnybank uh, sub-branch RSL, and uh, you're very welcome to join us if you'd like. Some of us will be involved in the uh, dawn service, uh, which is at 4.30 a.m. It's a beautiful time of the day. <laughs> and uh, then some will be involved in the main service. Our brigades will be uh, parading, so if you'd like to support them, they'll be there at 8 o'clock. This is at the RSL at Sunnybank. 
so yeah, look, I, I just want to uh, to um, encourage your attendance at one of those services. You might have your own sub brand or your own RSL somewhere, but encourage you to be part of the millions of people all around Australia and New Zealand who'll be celebrating Anzac Day. And can I just say this, just very quickly? Um, Folks, I don't think we really realise that this is an opportunity where God's word is actually spoken. The name of Jesus from me and others is spoken to crowds of, you know, sometimes thousands of people. Most of those folks will never attend church. But here they're hearing and, you know, they're singing hymns. They're, uh, they're hearing Bible readings, these sorts of things. Let's pray that God's spirit will brood over those people and touch people. Yeah. That's, I think that's a fantastic opportunity for God's spirit to work. Can I just uh, read something to you just to bring us into what Anzac Day was all about? <clears throat> a little bit of history quickly and then I'd just like to do a couple of things. The first Anzac Day. <clears throat> Anzac Day was first marked on the 25th of April 1916 in commemoration of the first anniversary of the landing of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps Anzac at Gallipoli. <clears throat> Out of the, sorry, of the 16,000 soldiers that landed, 2,000 would be killed and wounded on that fateful day, just on that day alone. By the time Gallipoli was evacuated in December 1915, sorry, excuse me, <clears throat> 1915, 8,709 Australians and 2,779 New Zealanders had been killed. While Anzac Day became an annual commemoration with its official title in 1916, it was not until the 1920s that all states officially recognised the 25th of April as a public holiday. The rituals associated with the day, such as a dawn service, two-minute silence, wreath laying and marches, became a common part of the commemoration by the 1930s. Many words are associated with Australians at war on peacekeeping missions, bravery, camaraderie, mateship, service, loyalty, honour, heroes and heroines. But there's one common word, one goal that brings them all together, and that's peace. This Anzac Day, remember and give thanks for the service of those who have fought for our freedoms, and we give thanks for those who are serving in our country today. Yeah. I'd like to be able to just share the ode with you, but before I do that, could I just ask uh, that we acknowledge um, the ex-service men and women that may be in this church. I don't know if you're out there this morning, uh, but uh, if you are an ex-serviceman, ex-service woman, um, and you'd like to step... I'd just like you to stand, actually, thanks. And those who are currently serving, so any ex-service people here? I'm not sure if we have them all here. Yes, we do. Good on you. Thank you. Anyone else? No, please stay standing. Just like it all to stand. <clears throat> yeah, that's lovely. Thank you for that. God bless you guys. Yeah, I think that's worth. Um... And I also know that there are parents of uh, of soldiers and and sailors and airmen who are actually serving at the moment as well. Yeah, so great. Could I ask us all to stand? Thanks, and I'd just like to share the ode with you. Following this, can we have a? We won't have a two-minute silence. We'll just have a one-minute silence, and then uh, I'm going to ask us all together to say the Lord's Prayer. That'll close this little time together. 
They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their faces to the foe. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them, lest we forget. One minute silence, thanks. Let's just say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Bless you. Thanks, church. Please be seated. Amen. Thanks, Pastor David. Well, good morning and uh, welcome again to church. And uh, regardless of whether you're here or in the auditorium, I just pray that you can engage uh, with what we're doing this morning. And it's great to have you join with us. Well, we're, we're continuing our series in Acts and we're, we're skipping over the surface of Acts and we're focusing specifically on um, being God's chosen instrument. So I, I hope you can engage with that this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, this particular passage of Scripture, there's a lot of stuff going on in it and we could certainly spend a lot of time digging into um, the account that is there. Um, this morning's message is an interesting one. I wouldn't normally preach this way, but I believe this is what God would have me to do. So let's dive in and um, see where we go with this. So th there's a lot of persecution breaking out in the early church as we read through this passage. Herod Agrippa is in power and Herod is enjoying greater power, greater favour with the Jewish people than any other king before him. And in a lot of ways, he wants to retain that popularity. He wants to continue to be on good terms with the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. So in order to do that, he, he, he realizes that as he kills James, the Jewish leaders are very, very happy about that. And he thinks, well, if this is something that's going to win me favor, let's 
keep going in this direction. And so he imprisons Peter. And it's very much believed that his intention was to have Peter there in prison for a while and then indeed to execute him as well and continue to have that favour with the religious leaders and indeed the Jewish people of the day. And it's interesting, up until this point, whenever we read about persecution against the church, against Jesus, against anyone else, it, it, it really singles out the leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Um, the scribes and all those types of guys but as we read this passage this morning we see in verse 3 and also in verse 11 that it speaks about the Jews and the Jews here is a very general term for the nation for the Jewish nation And, and so this group of people have approved of James's death it's not any longer just the religious leaders It's those who are generally referred to as Jews. And so the tide has turned. The favour that the early church enjoyed amongst the people of Israel has gone. Prosecution has broken out against God's chosen instruments. But it's not lost, is it? When troubles, trials and persecution come, the true strength and faith of a people is revealed and in this passage tonight we see the passion of the church let's pray father you're a good god and and lord i know there's many sitting here there's many at home who've experienced your incredible intervention they've seen your great power your answers to prayer And Lord, I just ask that this morning as we look at this passage, as we look at what you've said to me, and I pass that on to these people, that you'll just move in our hearts, you'll transform us, you'll give us a hunger and a passion and a desire for you. So Lord, use this word, I pray, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got to be honest, this is not a title that I would have come up with myself for what I'm about to present to you this morning. Uh, but I think it's quite fitting for this. When we speak about passion, I wonder what it is that we think about. And, and, and those of us who are engaged in Christianity and everything like that, we, we think about passion as referring to those final days of Christ's suffering as he went to the cross and as he was crucified. And, and that is correct. And we could rightly say that that is the passion of the church because our very faith, our very life should revolve around the finished work upon the cross and all that happened leading up to that and the fact that Jesus was resurrected and ascended as well. So if we were to say that was the passion of the church, that would indeed be correct. If we were to take a step back from that and look at a more modern term for what passion actually means... We would say that it's a strong emotion, that it's a zeal, that it's a desire. And and I don't think that the two meanings are mutually exclusive in what we're going to be looking at this morning. If we love the Lord, we understand all he's done. And I've got to be honest, that moved me emotionally the first time I got it. It moves me emotionally sometimes when I talk about it. He loves me. And he loved me when, when I was far from lovable. And he stepped into my world. And I've I got to tell you, I was so thankful. And my heart was moved in, in such an incredible way. And I did, I lost it. And I'm sure that's the truth and the story of so many here. And my heart just overflowed in gratitude. 
And at that moment, I just wanted to know him more. I wanted, I wanted to understand him more. I, wanted, I just wanted to be in his presence constantly. I want you to think back to Master Life for those of you who've done it, and that's quite a few in the church, actually. Master Life, especially book one, emphasises the foundational disciplines that we should have in our Christian walk. And these are the things that we should be passionate about. These are the things that we should reflect on and engage with. What's Luke 9.23, folks? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's where it all starts. And that should be a daily reminder to us. It's no longer about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. John 15.5, this is when we put Christ at the centre of our life. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then we're to be immersed in the word, aren't we? John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the final one this morning, and this is about our horizontal relationship, sorry, our vertical relationship, immersed in the word and given to prayer. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Are they truths that you stand on? Is that foundational to your life and walk? It should be. We spend time with the master, we live in the word, we pray in faith. Is that reflected in our lives? Is that our desire? Is that how we get to know our Lord and Saviour more? Jesus has always been concerned for his church forever. His plan was for his people to gather, to grow in unity and love for each other. He wants us to meet together. He wants us to raise our voices in worship and song. And isn't it great that we've got so many people who are talented who can lead us in doing that? Amen? Yeah, thank you. I, I think it is. I think it's awesome. I think it's great to have people up the back who drive stuff for us as well. But, but the Lord wants us to gather. He wants us to worship in music and song. He wants us to raise our voices by singing. He wants us to raise our voice in prayer. He wants us to raise our voices. We read the word and he wants that word to be declared in such a way that people will take it on board and will be challenged by it and their lives will be transformed by it as well. And when we think about Christ's concern for the church gathered, it's interesting when we look at Matthew 28, and Jesus gives that great commission. He says, go into all the world, <clears throat> teaching them to obey all that I command, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yo, I will be with you always. And we take that as individual. We take that as saying you, you know, as, as an individual. But Tim Keller says the original Greek word should be translated y'all. Big thing for Tim to say, he doesn't speak like that. But, but what it is, it is actually a corporate message. He's saying this is what my church, my gathered people will do. And so even in those final words, Jesus is concerned for you as a gathered people, not just as individuals. His intention was always that we'd be gathered in what we do. In this coming together, 
I want to focus on this passage this morning in that gathering for prayer. I think it's quite clear here. And I want you to be honest with yourself this morning. I want you to think about what this is saying to you. I want you to engage with what's before us. Have you ever used the term or have you ever heard someone use the term, all I can do is pray? It's like we've tried everything else. Nothing else has worked. Let's pray. Might as well give it a go. Been there? I'll be the pastor. I'll put up my hand. Isn't that sad? It's just so crazy, is it? Why is it so often that prayer is our last resort, our last hope? I've got to tell you too, I was in this church and I had, I had one of the young people from youth came up to me. It's like, hey, pastor, when we have a headache, why do we go straight for the Panadol? And I'm like, because it works <laughs> in my head. And she said, shouldn't we pray first? I was like, good point. Good point. I know amongst us, with those of us online, there's people who are facing incredible trials. I know life gets difficult, we have doubts, and we struggle with our faith. That's a given. But I want you to think about the church that we've read about this morning. James, the brother of John, has just been crucified, just been killed, sorry just been executed. Could you imagine if I was standing here this morning saying, hey guys, Pastor Darrell was taken last night. They killed him this morning. Could you imagine what that would do to us, how we would feel? And so these guys have just faced this, this great leader of theirs being killed. And then they hear that Peter's been taken as well. And it's most likely he's going to face the same fate. And they're seeing... The church in many ways being broken up and torn apart. And so the trials they're facing have the potential to suck the very life and enthusiasm out of them about following Jesus. And it would be natural to become discouraged, disillusioned and depressed. And to question whether following Jesus is really worth it. And I think that's true for us. I think we face trials, we face struggles, we face things that others aren't suffering and it comes at us from many different sources. And what we have to realise, what we have to accept is nothing comes against us that hasn't already gone through Jesus. Nothing comes against us that catches him from surprise, by surprise. He knows what we're going through. And so this, this church has all this stuff coming against them, the early church. And yet, his followers, Jesus' followers, come and pray together. They gathered to pray when it would be so easy for the gathered people to be identified and persecuted. They still gather to pray.
And I've got to tell you, this is so encouraging for me, and I hope it's encouraging for you. Things are looking pretty desperate. James has been killed. Peter looks like he's going to face the same fate. And the church might be wiped out. The gospel spread might be stopped. But, but, earnest prayer for him was being raised. Isn't that amazing? The church prayed. And, and we have to be reminded that the word church here isn't you guys at home. The word church used here is ecclesia. It is about gathered people. It is about a coming together. It means a community of believers, an assembly or a gathering of people. And as the called out ones, we are to be different to the rest of the world. Our first response is to be prayer. We're to gather together and pray. These people were not defeated. These people did not cower in fear. They came together in the very coming together. They made a statement. They were united in one purpose, one goal, one voice to their God. And they prayed. And these prayers, my friends, they were fervent prayers. As they gathered, they were stirred. They were of one mind. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? I've stood in a, in, in a prayer meeting with hundreds of people, hundreds, who were focused on one thing. And I've got to tell you, there's a power there that I haven't experienced anywhere else. It is simply incredible. And so when persecution and trials are upon a people, they have a tendency to pray. But we've got to come together. And we're told that there was earnest prayer being prayed for Peter. Some translations say it's fervent prayer. Some say they prayed without ceasing. Some say it was intense. And all of those translations are actually correct. We just can't grasp exactly what is happening here from the original word that was used. But the original word means to stretch out or go beyond. The same word is used um, with the disciples when they were waiting in the upper room as to the gift that Christ would give them as he promised. It is that same word that is used there. I think the most graphic and unparalleled example of this word is in this passage. And I don't think anyone could have prayed as earnestly as Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But what his prayer and the prayer of the church in our reading has in common is there's a prayer made on their knees before God. It's a people humbled, reaching out to him. It's an urgent and wholehearted pleading to him, desiring with all that they have, all that they are, longing for him to intervene and answer their requests. It's a people pouring their hearts out to God. And again, it's evident in James 5.16, where the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Great power. This is God's word. It's not Charlie's word. He wrote this. And this is referring to the energetic, passionate prayers of those who believe God can and will intervene in our world, that he can and will do mighty things. These are the prayers of saints who were burdened for God's purposes. 
And they pray for those who do not yet know God. They pray for those who've strayed. They pray for those who are suffering. They pray for those who need healing, for a world that is choosing to go their own way. And they're passionate about all of that. They want to see change, and they know that that change is only dependent upon God. There's nothing they can do. This is not apathetic prayer. This is not half-hearted prayer. They're engaged with the very creator of this world. And that desire to see him come into this world again and do great and mighty things, and they prostrate themselves before him. It's your way, Lord. It's your will. These are prayers poured forth from a burdened, troubled heart. And these are the prayers that reach heaven and move the very hand of God. But they're also focused prayers. As these people came together, they knew what they were there for. I have no doubt that many of the people there prayed out loud. I have no doubt that many of the people there prayed silently. I have no doubt there's many of the people there who didn't know what to pray. And they were just praying for the Lord to help them. But I could imagine that there was many voices that were raised and all of them had a primary focus of earnest prayer. For Peter they were gathered to pray for one of their own he was the focused they were not praying generally they were begging God to intervene in Peter's life on his behalf and in reality they were asking for a miracle they couldn't see any way out considering what had happened to James they they were just impassioned to pray. And perhaps because of what happened to James, it drove them to more fervent prayer. I don't know. Maybe they had greater commitment. Maybe they were more determined. Regardless, they were focused as they came to this point. They were seeking God and asking for his power to intervene in this situation. They were powerless. They could do nothing. And they relied totally upon him. And they were asking him to move in a supernatural way. Have you noticed when you pray very specific prayers, it's so much easier to see the answers? Uh, I've been privileged to be involved in some incredible prayer times and to see God do incredible things. When we pray specifically and when we identify those answers, it glorifies God because only he could have done it. No one and nothing else. And I, and I do love the medical miracles. I love those times when we've prayed for people and they've gone back to the specialists and the specialists have rechecked the scans or rechecked the x-rays or rechecked the blood work up and they go, we better do this again. And then they come back and they say, we got nothing. What was there is gone. Can't explain it. Well, let me tell you about that, doc. Well, actually, I've got another patient. <laughs> I've seen it happen again and again and again. And we give God the glory. As this church came together, they were united in their common desire to see Peter delivered. Their hearts were joined. They cried out to God and he heard them and he answered. But as disciplined followers of Jesus, as his chosen instruments, we have to accept God's answer. 
This is tough. When we look to God's answer and deliverance, in this passage of scripture, we move down the page and we get very excited about the fact that this incredible thing happens for Peter. Peter gets delivered miraculously by this angel who leads him out and takes him back to the church. And we don't think too much about the guy at the top of the page, hey? What happened with James? Was God sleeping? Did the church forget to pray for him? Or did they remember James and they didn't pray as fervently? They just decided Peter was the kingpin and, yeah, James, whatever, Lord. I don't think so. I think... I think Peter, Peter was free when James was killed. He was still a free man. And I believe Peter would have gathered the church. I believe Peter would have encouraged them to pray for James, that he would have been delivered just as the church ended up praying for Peter. But what happened? James is not physically rescued where Peter is. And whether you are friends with James or friends with Peter, is God sovereign in both situations? And the answer has to be yes. God is sovereign over all. This isn't a mistake. God allowed this to happen. Peter and James both faithfully, faithfully served the Lord. Both were obedient to him and his call upon their life. Both were living for him. And yet one is physically saved and one is martyred. And my friends, we have to arrive at a position where we pray for that physical deliverance where we pray for the miraculous healings of our loved ones our friends members of the church and then we leave it to God he's sovereign he knows what is best and I gotta tell you I don't understand it I don't understand why James died and why Peter was rescued but I tell you I'm really thankful that he doesn't answer all all prayer requests made by the prayer Look at this one. Who's thankful that prayer wasn't answered? This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. If this prayer hadn't been answered, I mean, if this prayer had been answered, we wouldn't be here. I don't think there's ever been an occasion where God's sovereignty has been expressed so powerfully. He gave that cup to Christ to drink. And we're all here today because of that. And God's sovereignty overruling our requests and what we consider wisdom is repeated all throughout history. And an account that I, can, I cannot get past. It happened before I was born in 1956. A guy called Jimmy Elliott and his five, four mates went off to these native Indians. They prepared for a couple of years to serve these guys. And they were killed within minutes of landing amongst them. What a waste. How insane. What was God thinking and doing? It doesn't make sense. One of the guys um, called Nate Saint, who was killed on that day, 
His son Steve, 40 years later, built an airstrip amongst those people. And those people knew who he was. And as it works out, he found out something that they hadn't known before. The five missionaries actually were armed. They all had handguns. They had resolved to not use them to harm the Indians. And so as they were attacked, when they were fired, they were just fired in the air. And there were a number of those who killed them who took note of this. And that was the catalyst for them coming to faith. You know, at the time, the media got hold of this account. Global Mission came under heavy criticism. And although these men died physically, God used this situation. I'm not sure if you know the story, but that whole tribe came to faith and many others as a result. These five men had agreed they would harm no one. And the decision had a huge impact upon those people. When we think about Stephen, his death led to the growth of the church. And when we think about James, his death led to nothing I know of. Maybe it made the church pray more fervently for Peter. But we don't know. And so we must accept God didn't lose control. And perhaps when we get to glory, he'll give us the reasons why that happened to James and people similar to that and why those that we thought should be healed, those we thought shouldn't die, did so. Those loved ones, the ones we prayed for, the ones we thought that God didn't hear us or decided not to move at all or didn't respond. He did indeed respond, but not in the way we wanted. And he had a reason and a purpose for that. And we just have to accept that. That makes it tough. But what's really amazing about this account, these guys are praying for Peter's life and his delivery. And God answers their prayer. And this servant girl goes to the gate and hears Peter's voice. And she believed that it was Peter and she was so overjoyed that Peter was standing at the gate. She forgets to unlock the gate. She runs back to the guys and says, Peter's at the gate. It's so cool. Peter's actually here. And they're like, yeah, you're stark raving mad woman. There's no way. No way. Maybe it's his angel. You see, there was a Jewish belief then that um, everyone had a guardian angel and that angel would sometime take on the appearance of the person that they were the guardian of. But regardless, they didn't believe it was Peter there. And he had to keep knocking and keep calling out while those who prayed were inside fighting about whether it could actually be him at the gate or not. How ironic, how amazing. And God can and will do things that cannot be explained. Amen? I'm so thankful that he still does that. If we are praying according to his will, he can step in and do great and mighty things. But if we want to see such things, we have to believe the power of prayer. We have to make prayer the first port of call. Prayer has to be our default in all things rather than being that thing that we try when everything else fails. I want you to think about the times you've experienced people who have gathered and prayed fervently. People who were passionate about prayer. How were their prayers answered? 
I'd like to suggest first and foremost <clears throat> that there were times when God intervened in a powerful and miraculous way. And so people could obviously say that it was nothing else than an act of God. There is no other way that prayer could have been answered and I've seen that happen. I think we've all seen those times or known those times ourselves when people have endured incredible hardship, pain, suffering, physical and material loss. And God hasn't intervened to do anything to turn that around and yet their faith in God is totally unaffected. Their faith in fact shines out of them. It has this radiance that is just incredible and we don't understand how they can endure through what they're going through. But yet his love continues to shine and it humbles me. I, I, I'm blessed by people like that. And so it is God who sustains them through his presence and his power and his grace. And those people just move your very soul. We are blessed by their faith when we're present with them. There's a third group who have prayed and they've had their faith shattered by whatever it is that's happened. When God doesn't answer the way they wanted or hoped, they are engulfed in depression and anger with so many negative feelings and they become bitter towards God and the things of God and so they turn away from him and they want nothing more to do with him or the church. There's another group who've prayed and then instead of enduring the hardships and instead of trusting God in the midst of that, they end up compromising and they do things that they know are counter to what the Lord would have them to do. They compromise their faith, they compromise their, convic compromise their convictions and so they avoid or minimise the pain or the persecution or the rejection that they could experience if they held fast to what they should. And then there are those who have prayed, who've been in a crisis They didn't know Jesus at the time, but they prayed in the midst of this crisis in this deep, dark place. And it's the very situation which has jolted them into realising that security can't be found in anything of this world. No worldly possessions, no success, no powerful peers. And their eyes have been opened to the reality of God. I had the joy um, of meeting a couple in our church on the Sunshine Coast a few years ago. And, and the wife of this man reminded me so much of this lady who was one of our dental assistants when we had our surgery in Gladstone. And I just had to walk up to her. I said, you just remind me so much of this woman who used to work for me and my wife. And she goes, oh, really? She goes, where was that? I said, in Gladstone. She goes, that's my twin sister. I went, whoa. And I said, and you're in church? I said, and she's not. She goes, yes, she is. I'm like, wait, what? You see, her twin sister, her daughter had got cancer. And we'd ministered to that woman for years. And she was always politely, no, thank you. And yet... Her daughter getting cancer was the catalyst that made her believe in a loving saviour. And her and her family are committed to Christ now. What an incredible blessing to be able to hear that. So it happens. I stand here not knowing where you are 
in regards to your prayer life in Christ. I don't know what you think about gathering with others to pray. But I know, I long and pray for a day when we'll have to have the prayer meetings in here because they're too big and because we're engaging in God. When people talk about SDBC, what are we known for? Are we known for our love and unity for each other? Are we known for proclaiming the word? Are we known as a house of prayer? Because we should be. Let's pray. I've got to say it again, you're a good God. And I thank you so much for your incredible answers to prayer. I thank you. There's people sitting amongst us who have experienced great healings, Lord, who have experienced turnaround, turnarounds in circumstances in life. And I thank you for the greatest miracle of all, Lord, that you have revealed yourself as our Lord and Saviour and we have come into that saving knowledge of you. But, Lord, we're a broken people. We're a people who get caught up in thinking we know best. And I want to ask for your forgiveness for us. I want to ask, Lord, that you'll shift in us in such a way that we realise we need to engage with you in prayer. We need to spend time with you, yes, personally, but Lord, if we're serious about seeing change at SDBC, if we're serious about seeing change in our community, we need to come together as one voice and one people and pray for those communities and pray for us. Lord, I'm powerless to do anything. This is a work of you and Holy Spirit. And I ask you will move amongst us by his spirit. I know you can do it, Lord. And I know we can be recognised as those people who pray, those people who love, those people are so united with each other that we stand with and for each other in whatever situation. So continue your good work, I pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you all. Thank you so much for being us. Remember, being with us. Remember, we have morning tea out here. For those of you who don't have kids in kids' church, if you do, you have morning tea down there this morning. I pray God will bless you. I pray he keep you. I pray his face will shine upon you. And guys, if you need prayer, please come to the front. We'd love to pray for you. God bless one another.